All right, as we uh, continue on as people straddle in, we move on to the letter O, which as I've already indicated, is open up, open up. This is um, is one of those things that you would think that when you think about communication, this would be a no-brainer. You don't have to say this, but you have to say it. Part of communication is communicating, is opening up, is actually talking, talking about whatever needs to be talked about. If it's a conflict talking openly about the conflict itself. If it's not a conflict, but just relationship, it's talking openly about uh, the things that are going on in your heart, the things that are going on in your life, the dreams, the aspirations, the desires that you have. Hey, Tim. Yes. The wives are really excited to get into the open up point now. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Here, here's the reality, you know. You kind of unearthed a lot point one. Now you're going <laughs> Yeah, it's it's um. There's there there are there are issues on both sides. You can you can you can chill too far, so that you don't say anything, or you can open up too much, so that you're not chilling. Yeah. So. Understand, the biblical principles are held in a kind of holy tension. Uh, we need both. And I'm going to say this right at the end. As, as we look at these principles, folks, don't just say, hey, I'm, okay, I'm going to work on that one. But I'm not going to work on that one. No, these, this is a set of principles that needs to turn into a lifestyle. And all of them need to be pursued simultaneously. It doesn't work to say, okay, I'm going to work on the open up, but not the chill. No, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. People around you aren't going to like that. All right? Or the other way. This all is part of, you know, it's all part of the same piece of cloth. It's all part of the same experience of, of grace. So open up. Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, better is open rebuke, that means uncovered rebuke, than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Each of these texts calls for a real, open, honest expression of what is on your mind, what is in your heart. Poem moment, main point. To hide the heart and spirit close, to hide the heart and spirit close does far more harm than we suppose. To hide the heart and spirit close does far more harm than we suppose. Communication cannot happen without words. 
We must learn to open up our hearts, speak our thoughts, our hurts, our dreams, our joys, our sorrows, our spiritual condition, our needs. Another God moment and Gospel moment. Aren't you deeply and profoundly grateful that God has opened up to us? That God is a speaking God. He talks to us. He shares what's on His heart with us. Jesus said to His disciples in John 15, You are My friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from My Father, I have made known to you. We are not left in the dark. We are not as human beings, left to wander around at midnight in pitch blackness with all the lights out, trying somehow to stumble and bumble our way through life. God God has not left us clueless. In fact, He has done the very opposite. He has revealed to us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to know Him and love Him and enjoy Him. And live life on this planet. He is a talking God. So once again, it's, it's a part of being like God to be talkers. To, to, to be those who open up. It's part of being in the image of God. So that in all of our key relationships, there need to be open lines of conversation. Actual talk that flows, that runs freely, that reveals the re- real us. To others. It's a major cause of relationship uh, breakdown when people fail at this very point. We don't talk, we don't open up, we don't share openly and honestly. And at the very least, what happens there is it shrinks the relationship and it shallows the relationship. And eventually, it often destroys the relationship. To hide, the heart and spirit closed does far more harm than we suppose. We we need to chill because of the sin of blowing up. Yeah. Uh, we need to open up uh, because of the sin of clamming up. Right. Um, we we need to be transparent. We need to be honest. I once saw a couple in counseling that. Um, had been in conflict for for years. In fact, in this one particular episode, they had been uh, there had been a twelve year stretch of time where she lived in constant anger toward him. Every day he felt her anger, and and I had spent a number of times in counseling with them, trying to get to the bottom of this, trying to figure this out, and trying to help them work through it, and was just getting nowhere. And finally, I just, I just looked at her, and I said, please, you need to help us here. What is it that your husband did that so made you so angry that it's with you to this day? And just in the Spirit's grace, that was the moment. And she then just said, okay, here's what it was. She proceeded to share that it was a decision he had made her make 12 years ago that was uh, against her will, she perceived, against her desire. But he had forced her into it. And 
She had never forgiven him, never even gotten over the anger of that moment. And her husband looked at her with a shocked look on his face and said, that's the first time you've ever said anything about that. And she admitted that it was. So for 12 years, holding him hostage to a decision made, uh, act done, holding him hostage with anger, never once opening up about it. Oh. Yeah, if you're, if you're one of those who is inclined to say to somebody who's offended you, if you don't know what you did wrong, I'm not telling you. I'm here to tell you that that is about one of the dumbest things you could ever say. Particularly if that person is begging you to tell them. I don't know what I did. Please help me. Oh, if you don't know, I'm not telling you. You should know. Folks, do you know every time you do something wrong against somebody else? Somebody loves you enough to ask you? Open up. Open up. One time a a husband and wife were in a counselor's office and the wife blurts out, I believe my husband is cheating on me and he looked shocked. The counselor looked shocked and... and, um, the counselor says, "Why? Why do you think this?" And uh, she responds, "Well, I, you know, I keep track of the money. That's my role in the family, and I, I've been noticing that there's money missing consistently, uh, and uh, and I just believe he's using it on on another woman." And uh, the husband just kind of again stunned in the moment, and but still a little bit hesitant to respond, but finally reaches into his pocket, pulls out his wallet, and pulls out all the money that was missing, uh, and says, I've been saving this for our anniversary. Here she was, ready for serious... um, uh, perhaps even divorce, certainly in the middle of serious conflict and distrust and animosity and resentment and anger, all because of silence. That was the moment she brought up, you're cheating on me. Why had she not said it before? This this need to to be transparent, this, this need to be open, this need to be real, this, this need to, to get what's in here out. And it's not just openness about wounds and hurts and concerns. It is openness about life and desires and cravings and dreams and aspirations. Husbands and wives just sit and talk about what you want to do with your life together. You know what? Gailey and I have been married for 38 years, and she found out just last year that my peanut butter of preference is Jif and not Skippy. (laughs) For some reason, I never opened up about that detail. It's been Jif ever since, you know. I could have had it all that time. <laughs> <laughs> I just would have. <laughs> 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 
I open up? You know, it's recently. I was um, not long ago. I was I was interacting with a friend. It was a, another pastor, and there were some real difficult challenges going on in his his church. And so we talked much and interacted much, and my role in that whole situation was one of counselor and encourager. Uh, but at the tail end of an email, I just tacked on these words. By the way, would you please pray for me? My headache has been acting up a bit and I need grace. For those that don't know, I live with a headache. I have it all the time for 28 years. Uh-huh. Um, and I just said, my headache's been acting up a bit. I need grace. Will you please pray for me? His response to me was this. Tim, I am praying for you. And Tim, thanks for inviting me into care for you like that. And I realized in that moment that by opening up, I wasn't thinking this, this is going to deepen my relationship with his brother, but it was just a transparent moment. It was just an open moment. It was just a moment where what I was feeling, what I was struggling with, I said, I I shared. And it changed the nature of our relationship. It deepened the friendship. It was a breakthrough in that situation. Open up. Open up. That leads to the first M in our outline. Make time. Make time. All that we're talking about highlights the need for this point. Communication and relationship require time. And you know, I've often thought about the number of relationships that are in my life. Galen and I have been married for 38 years. We have six children. We have, uh, I'm going to call it 10 grandchildren now because one of our sons is soon to get married and that's bringing in a, a bride and her daughter. So 10 grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Uh, There'll be four daughters-in-law, a church of 250 people, uh, 14 churches that I help to care for. Uh, Life's pretty full of relationships for me. Um, and, And these relationships are all of varying degrees of priority and responsibility and closeness and intimacy and all the rest. Uh... But I need to make sure that I am making time for those relationships according to the degree of priority and responsibility that I have in those relationships. I can't just assume that those relationships are going to stay intact or are going to grow deeper or are going to to somehow weather the storms of life or disagreement. I, I can't assume that. I have to make time to cultivate the relationships. In Amos 3 and verse 3, it says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? The New American Standard puts it, Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? It's it's just it's just one of those basic things. Okay, 
Um, we can't talk unless we plan to talk. And it's not likely it's going to happen. We have to be somehow or other connected, make sure there's opportunity. Couples, married couples, cannot deepen relationship with each other unless there is time for that relationship, devoted to that relationship. It's just a principle that is not so much mandated in the Bible as it is modeled in the Bible. You see Jesus with his disciples. You see Elijah with Elisha. You see Moses with Joshua. You see that there are just relationships are happen in the context of much time spent together. And we, there's this old debate in terms of, you know, what's more important, quality time or quantity time? I, I would argue that you can't have quality time without quantity time. You can't just turn on, push the quality button. Okay, let's do quality time. It doesn't work that way. It, it happens. It flows out of the experience of quantity time. Now, if you've had quantity time, and there's deep roots of time together, of, of communication and fellowship and connection, well, you don't have to have quantity every time thereafter in order to have quality. I have, we have friends, uh, who are missionaries in Chad and have been there for 30 years now. We see them about once every three to five years. He was my roommate in college, best man in our wedding. We pick up our conversations every three to five years like the last time we talked was three to five days ago. You know, it's just, it's an instantaneous quality time. But it's quality because we spent hundreds of hours together in friendship building early on in our in our lives. There needs to be time together. So here's the main point poetically expressed. Talk takes time. Talk takes time, so choose to plan. Talk takes time, so choose to plan how much and when as best you can. Talk takes time, so choose to plan how much and when as best you can. You, you cannot build deep communication with somebody that you hardly spend any time with. Again, God and Gospel moment. Way back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve just made. Where do you find God in Genesis 3? Walking in the Garden, looking for Adam and Eve. The picture there is he's walking in the garden to spend time with Adam and Eve. His, his heart was to be with them. His, his heart was to have time with them. Go all the way to the end of the Bible and what do you see? That in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be the dwelling place of God and God is with man and He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. That's the ultimate expression of making time. Where God is making a new heaven and a new earth where we will be with Him for endless time. 
where there will be an endless experience of communication and affection and love and worship and adoration, time without end. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise, enjoy His love than when we first begun. According to the studies that I have seen, and one always holds these studies with a certain kind of uncertainty and question mark, uh, but according to the studies that I have seen, there are, there are two um, time frames in a married couple's life at which they are most vulnerable to divorce. The first is within the first four or five years when the couple, uh, you know, often are so busy, so active, trying to build their home, trying to do their jobs, pursue their careers, make more money so they can buy their home. You know, all that stuff, you know, just maybe throw a couple of kids in there and all of a sudden they, you know, four or five years in, they just had, a, had enough. You know. The other is within a year or two of the empty nest, within a year or two of when all the kids are gone. And what happens? The husband and the wife sit down and they look at each other and realize, I don't even know this person. Yeah. Haven't talked to them in any kind of meaningful, relational kind of way for years now because we've been spending all our energy and all of our time and all of our effort and all of our money on raising the kids, getting them through college, doing whatever we're doing. And they get to the end of it, and because they didn't make time for each other, quality time, I would say priority time, for each other, the marriage was over. Relationships are made or broken by time. By time. There needs to be talk time, prayer time, share time, intimacy time. Time. You can't wing this. You can't just think or assume that it's just going to happen. It's not. You need to plan it. If you're married, you need to plan quantity time with each other. You need to prioritize it in your weekly schedule. You need to put it right near first place. Maybe right after your time with God in the morning. Uh, is time with spouse. Where is it going to be today? Where is it going to be this week? Make time. Make time. Next. More I could say on that, but I think I'll skip ahead. Mean what you say. Mean what you say. I've read somewhere that if a man says, I can't find it, what he means is something like this. When I opened my eyes and what I wanted had not fallen nicely into my outstretched arms, I had no idea what to do next. That's just, that's just <laughs> but it's true. It is true. And, and when, when I first read it, I said, man, is that the truth? 
it was flashback for me to the early years of our marriage. I, I, I remember, I remember more than once, probably many more times than once, opening the refrigerator and yelling to the other end of the house to where Galen was, "Hun, where's the ketchup?" before I had even looked in the refrigerator. (laughs) Where's the ketchup? It's pathetic, guys. It really is pathetic. Next point. (laughs) Oh, man. What... What does my question, where's the ketchup, really mean? It really didn't mean, I don't know where the ketchup is. It meant something like, hun, would you please wait on me hand and foot? Because I am too lazy, too selfish to take care of myself. That's right. Here we go. Oh, friends, real communication requires that we mean what we say and say what we mean. At the end of the day, this is a matter of integrity. It's a matter of honesty. Um, Colossians 3.9 Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. It's about as blunt and straightforward as it gets, right? Don't lie to each other. Mean what you say. Mean what you say. It's it's more than a call to tell the truth. It is that. We we shouldn't lie to each other. But if we if we understand this more fully, what it what it means is that we need to seek to make every word we speak be honest, accurate to our feelings, and as clearly expressed as we can possibly make it. Mean what you say means we need to make sure every word we speak is honest, it's accurate to our feelings, and it's as clearly expressed as it possibly can be. Fuzzy words, vague words, cryptic words, words with hidden meanings are pretty much equal to lies. If we have it in our power to speak what we are thinking more clearly and more accurately. Fuzzy, cryptic, vague, hidden meaning words are pretty much equal to lies if we have it in our power to speak what we are thinking more clearly and more accurately. Don't be obscure. Don't be mysterious or backhanded. Be clear. Be precise and be sincere. We are called not just to honesty, but to clarity. Main point. Poetic. Being heard depends on you. Being heard depends on you. Make all your words... But you don't have to leave, man. Did I offend you? 
Thank you. I appreciate that. Being heard depends on you. Make all your words both straight and true. Being heard depends on you. Make all your words both straight and true. One of the great, wonderful things about the Bible, God's Word, is that it's straight and true. It tells it straight. It tells it true. I've often said through the years that the place where I feel safest in relationship is with my Bible open. Because this is the one place in human experience where I know everything I read is true. Everything I read is clear enough for me to understand, even if there are parts I don't understand, I can understand it clearly enough. God speaks true words. He means what He says. He says what He means. And God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews tells us. The wonderful thing about God is that He can be trusted to say what He means and mean what He says. And so once again, to say what we mean is simply to be like God. It's to, it's to reflect the image of God. We take a huge step forward in our relationship with God when we realize how trustworthy His Word is. You know, folks, this is, you really do. When you get to a point in your life, and I remember the days in my life where I would ask questions about things in the Bible like, well, doesn't this contradict that? And isn't this that? And, you know, and over time I just, I just came to realize, you know what? Every time I ask one of those questions, I find out the answer and it's, oh, okay, alright, it doesn't contradict. And I just got to a point where I, I'm not going to bother with the questions anymore. I'm just, if it says it, it's true. If it says it, it's true. I don't know if you remember, there used to be a bumper sticker. Uh, that went, um, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I had a friend who had that on his car, and I used to, I used to tease him just a little bit about it. I'd say, I think you need to tweak that just a little. Take out the middle part. All you really need is God said it, that settles it. Whether or not you believe it is irrelevant to the truth of it. God said it. That settles it. God said it. It's true. It's real. God says what He means. God means what He says. You grow in faith. You grow in holiness. You grow in love for God. You grow in affection for God. The moment you get beyond all the questions and the doubts and just say, you know what? God has proven His Word so many times now, I don't need to doubt it anymore. I'm just going to take him at his word. Because I know he means what he says. Now, we also grow in our relationship when we reflect God. So there's there's a couple of parts to this that I think are worth highlighting. It means you need to do two things. One, you need to express carefully what you mean. You need to express carefully what you mean. We, we humans have a nasty habit of cloaking our meaning, our meaning with vagary and mystery. Don't, don't make other people guess what you mean. And whatever you do, don't say the opposite of what you mean. Thinking that somehow or other they're going to figure out that it's the opposite of what you mean. 
Mean what you say. Make sure your words are an accurate reflection. And then carefully express what you mean. Proverbs 15.28 The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Again, you probably read that before, but you know, have you ever stopped to think about its implications for your relationships, for your, for your life? Ponder how to answer. Think before you speak. Choose your words carefully. Ken Sandy says, we should communicate so clearly that we cannot be misunderstood. That's probably overstated. Because only God can get it 100% right. But you understand the point he's making. We should, we should try, that's what I would say, we should try to communicate so clearly that we cannot be misunderstood. So, in order to do that, we may need to ask ourselves a few questions about what we're about to say to somebody. Uh, are these words truthful? Are these words balanced? Are these words clarifying or confusing? Are there better words I can use? How would I interpret these words if they were spoken to me? Do my words and my tone and my attitudes match? So, well, that's a whole lot to think about. Well, a wise man ponders how to answer. Mm. And I'm here to tell you, folks, that the more you... The more you choose such a path of caution, the more you choose such a path of carefulness and clarity, the the easier... Is that the right word? The easier it gets. The more natural it gets. The more instinctive it gets. You just find yourself slowing down. You just find yourself pausing before you talk. Pausing before you react. So, this implies, first of all, that we express carefully what we mean, and then secondly, that we avoid words we don't mean. We avoid words we don't mean. And this isn't, this isn't any kind of original genius with me, but it should, you know, I'm sure you've seen or heard this elsewhere. But, you know, there are words we use in our communication, in our interaction and relationships that we just don't mean. Words like never and always. You never do this. You always do that. Parents and teens are really good at this. Husbands and wives are really good at this. Both are lies. So on that ground alone, lie not to one to another. Because what does the word never mean? Last I checked, never, not ever. Never. Not ever. <laughs> you see it? Not ever. Always means what? Always. Without ceasing. All the time. Is, is that accurate? You know, to, to quote Fezzik of Princess Bride fame, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> never means never. Always means always. It's amazing how literal children can be. I remember the time when Gaylene was uh, putting away some toys in the attic and one of our sons was five years old at the time and he saw her putting these toys into, into the attic and he said, Mom, why are you putting my toys in the attic? 
Aileen said, well, because you never play with them anymore. And our son said, never is a long time. <laughs> a long time. You understood the meaning of the words. It is a long time. It's an absolute term. Couple sitting in my office counseling them, and and at one point the wife says, "My husband never helps me with the children." And so, wanting to make sure, and this is the next point that I understand what I hear, I I say, "Excuse me, can can you please help me? I want to make sure." what you mean by the word never. Do you, do you mean never ever at all? Or do you mean that he only does it once in a while? And if he does it once in a while, is it, you know, once a month, once every two weeks? What, you know, and she, well, he helps me out probably at least two or three times a week. And I just paused and I think I said it graciously and kindly. I said, but do you see the difference between never and two or three times a week. The difference is massive. The impact of the word never is massive in a negative way. For when never and always are said, it is like pouring gasoline onto the fire of that conflict. Because you know how it feels. When you're on the receiving end of you never help out, you never do this, you always fail me in this way, you immediately get defensive because you know it's a lie. It's not the truth. It's an exaggeration. And you go into counterattack. You go into retaliation mode at that point. And the argument has suddenly escalated into war. Because of a word that you didn't really mean. There is a massive difference in the impact on that other person that you care about when instead of saying never, you simply say, hun or friend, I wish that you would help me more. Doesn't take a lot of work to think of those words. It takes a lot of grace and humility to say them. Never seems to come out a lot easier. But that's not what you mean. You don't mean never. You mean, I wish you would help me more. Mean what you say. Make sure that your words are clear. There are so many other words that we use in different contexts that um, I'm not sure that we entirely mean and don't have time to get into all of them. But I'll just I'll mention one other set of words. That's probably worth a whole seminar on its own. Um, It's the set of words that often gets exchanged between friends and family and all the rest. I'm sorry, and that's okay. Usually, often, often, I will say usually, I will say almost, I don't want to exaggerate. Many, 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 many times, both are lies. The I'm sorry is not meaning I feel sorrow. That's, by the way, what I'm sorry means. I feel sorrow because I have said something or done something that offended you or hurt you or grieved you. What it really means, I'm sorry, is 
I realize that in how we do relationships in our culture, there is a little phrase we use to try to release the pressure. And it's, I'm sorry. And it's customary, when that happens, for the other person to say, that's okay. When in fact, it's not. When in fact, that person is still mad. That person is still angry. That person still wants more understanding. That person still wants to be heard. The I'm sorry and the that's okay actually um, short circuits the communication. And it, it brings a wound into the relationship that's not healed. And we could get this with a whole seminar. A whole seminar on the nature of asking forgiveness and giving forgiveness uh, would be well worth doing. Because... What is forgiveness? It's more than just a glib, that's okay. Forgiveness is a promise. What's God's forgiveness for you? It's a promise. Your sins, I will remember no more. It's a promise that says, I am never going to bring up this offense against you again. I am not going to let this offense affect my relationship with you. From here on out, we're good. That's God's promise to us. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the new covenant promise. Your sins I will remember you remember no more. From here on out, from the moment of your conversion, your faith in Christ, God says to you, from here on out, we're good. Praise God. We're good. We're good. Now, when people say, I'm sorry, that's okay. That's not what they mean. They're not really sorry. It's not really okay. And so a lie has been introduced. A double lie has been introduced into the relationship. That will come back to haunt. It will come back to grief. And so we need to mean what we say. We need to think about it. We need to be clear in expressing it. So much more could be said there. But enough for now. You stands for understand what you hear. Understand what you hear. In Proverbs 18, verse 2, verse 13 and 15, we read these words, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing or airing his opinion. And then again, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And then, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Understand what you hear. James 1 Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now in that context, by the way, it's not really, James isn't primarily thinking about relationships there. He's thinking about the hearing of God's Word. The preaching of God's Word. And the teaching there is, when you hear your pastor preach, be quick to hear, and slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's the context. That's the point. However, that said, there is surely a secondary application that we can make to our lives. 
and our relationships. Beloved brothers, be, be quick to hear, slow to speak. Make sure you're understanding what you're hearing. The main point, poetry forms, to listen, to listen, cover mouth with hand. To listen, cover mouth with hand, and bend the ear to understand. To listen, cover mouth with hand, and bend the ear to understand. Listening takes labor. Listening takes work. Diligent effort to really hear must be made or miscommunication and misunderstanding will happen. Assume nothing. Don't trust your interpretations of what other people say. Seek understanding or else you're going to find trouble. And again, one of the striking, comforting features of God and His love for us for His children is His ability to to hear our hearts even when our words are confused and confusing. You ever read the Psalms and and kind of, you know, (coughs) feel a little shocked at what you read as the psalmist express levels of fear and anguish and doubt and uncertainty and sometimes it feels borderline anger toward God. And these are part of our psalms. These are This is a part of God's Word. And what it means is that God hears these cries of His children. And He understands the cries of His children. This is not a rebel creature shaking his fist in my face. This is one of my children who's heartbroken and crushed and hurting and confused. He understands what he hears and responds accordingly. I, I, I've been affected if in, in Luke chapter 1. Remember when the angel appears to Zechariah, the father of, of John the Baptist, and then later appears to Mary, the mother of our Lord. Um, And the angel makes two announcements, both of which are astonishing announcements. The first, Zechariah, your your wife Elizabeth, who is very, very old, is going to have a child. And then to Mary, Mary, you who are a virgin, who have never known a man, you're going to have a child. Listen to the responses of Zechariah and Mary. Zechariah says, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. That's, that's his response. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Listen to Mary's response. How will this be since I am a virgin? Now you listen to their two responses. They sound pretty similar to me. Very little difference. In the words, a very big difference in God's response to their words. Zechariah gets rebuked and disciplined and turned mute for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Hmm. Mary is praised 
as a woman of faith. And the words are almost identical. Because God, who has the advantage of being omniscient, knows the heart. He understands the heart. God understood what he was hearing. Zechariah's words questioned, really were questioning God's ability. Mary's words were simply questioning God's logistics. Big difference. Zechariah was expressing words of doubt. Mary was expressing words of wonder and worship. The heart was different. And God knew the difference. God has, because He's omniscient, perfect intuition. He, he, he gets it as soon as the words come out of our mouth. He knows exactly what our intent, what our meaning is. We have to study what God knows intuitively. We have to ask questions. We have to probe. We have to seek understanding and seek knowledge. But it sure does matter that we try. You know, don't you, what it's like to be misunderstood. When people misinterpret things you've done or things you've said. And they walk away with a negative thought or a hurt feeling or an accusation. And you say, I didn't mean that. I didn't. That's not what was in my heart. It, it's, it's easy to identify with the person who said, quote, I know that you believe you understand what you think I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. I know that you believe you understand what you think I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. It's no fun being misunderstood. Sometimes it's no big deal. Other times it matters deeply. It can get serious. A couple sat in my office one time told me about a crisis in their relationship, a conversation that had gone on like this. The wife said to her husband one day, why don't you just bring home your paycheck and then leave? Right? That's what she said. Why don't you just bring home your paycheck and then leave? Let me ask you, what did she mean? What did she mean? One possibility is that all he does is work and bring home the money and is of no further use or value or benefit in the home. Meaning, she wishes he was. Meaning that she wishes he was home. Did she mean the opposite of what she said? How did he interpret what she said? She doesn't, she just wants my money. This was a massive failure both on the M and on the U. She did not mean what she said. He did not understand what he heard. She should have been much more clear in what she meant. 
And he should have labored to understand what he heard. He should have said to her, Hon, please help me here. This is what I'm hearing. This is, this is what it sounds like you just said to me. Can you please help me? I want to understand. Do you want me to leave? Is that what you want? So that she could have made it clear, no, no, we want you here. But all that's going on now is you go to work, you bring the check home, and then you check out. We want you here. She didn't say what she meant. I mean what she said. He did not understand what he heard. I have, um, in my own experience as a pastor, this has been, I think, the number one complaint about me as a pastor. And that is that people have often sensed that I have not really heard them, not really understood them. Um, and uh, as I've worked through this um, concern that people have had, I've uh, I thought I heard, you know, I thought I understood, I thought I got it. Um, and many times I had heard and understood and gotten it, but they didn't feel heard. Two different things. Um, but many times I hadn't really heard. I had missed the point. And I was so quick to give my response to their question. So, yeah, Tim, why did you do this? Rather than, you know, why did you say it that way? Might have been the, the question. And instead of saying, asking the question back, how did that affect you? What did that say to you? How did What did that communicate to you? How did you interpret my words? Instead of asking questions to understand what I was hearing, I would just go into automatic answer mode. Here are the five reasons why I said it that way. I wasn't really understanding what I was hearing. I was responding to something that wasn't really the point. The point was that the effect of what I had said had wounded or hurt or offended in some way. And that was much more important than me having an answer for the questions. We need to understand what we hear. So I've, I've had to just learn to ask questions, kind of interpretive, drawing out questions. Questions like, what did you mean by the words or the phrase how has this made you feel? What did you mean by those words? How has this made you feel? Um, I think I'm hearing you say this. Am I right? Am I understanding you correctly? Um, do you feel like there's anything that I'm not yet hearing? This is this is a golden rule principle, folks. This is this is just how we like to be treated. Yeah, it's good. We like to be understood. We like to be heard. Do to others as you'd have them do to you. It's a love principle. It's a respect principle. Turn off the phone. Shut down the texting. Click off the television. Close the book. Relinquish the floor. Look into the other person's eye. And give that person as close to 100% attention as you can. So that that person feels in the moment that as far as you're concerned, they're the only person on earth right now. 
Make them feel that so that they know that you understand not just what you're hearing, but understanding what's intended by it, what it's meant by it, what's behind it. For that period of time, give them the, the sensation, the glorious sensation of being heard. Understand what you hear. And, and I think we'll pause after this point. Uh, we might do two more. <laughs> Nourish with grace. Nourish with grace. All kinds of texts I could turn to, but I give, I give you just two. Colossians 4 and verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious. And Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only, only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let me dissect that second verse for you, Ephesians 4.29. It's an absolute categorical, no exception type of double-sided command here. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. No means no. None. Again, we're never going to get this perfect. Jesus got it perfect. His perfect speech has been credited to my account. I have imputed perfection with my tongue. It's amazing, isn't it? It is. Just amazing. God looks at me as if I've ever, I've always only spoken the right word at the right time because of Christ. What freedom. What freedom to actually look at these things, stare them right in the face, right in the face, right in the eyes and say, all right, we're going to deal with this stuff. We can do that with courage. We can do that with confidence because we don't have to worry about the consequences of failure. We don't have to worry that God somehow or other is going to either love us or not love us depending on how well we do. It's amazing. Just amazing. So we can look at categorical absolute statements and say, ooh, I'm not going to get there this side of heaven, but I'm going to try. And I can do it without fear. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Corrupting means not dirty talk, although there's no room for dirty talk either, but that's a whole other seminar. It means worthless talk. Um, it's worthless like a bad piece of fruit is worthless. It has no, no value. In the Scriptures, it's used of fishermen who gathered fish into a net and some of the fish were worthless. They were of no value. They, had, they served no purpose. Words that have no benefit, no usefulness, no value for the hearer. Paul says, don't talk. Don't, don't even use those words. Don't even go there. But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Only what is good for building up. Say only what edifies. Say only what builds up. Say only what strengthens. He says, say what fits the occasion. That which is useful and needful right then, right there for that person who's right in front of you. And useful for what? To give grace. To give grace. 
put off the corrupting, worthless, empty, useless talk. Put on a tongue and lips that give grace. That give grace. Our gladness, main point, our gladness in relationships. Our gladness in relationships flows from the stream of grace-filled lips. Our gladness in relationships flows from the stream of grace-filled lips. Words are meant to nourish, to heal, to feed, to strengthen, to edify, to bless. They are not to be worthless, not to be pointless, not to be even worse than worthless. Unedifying. De-edifying, if that's it's not a word, but you get the point. Counter-edifying. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. When God talks, what happens? Souls get revived. The simple are made wise. The heart is rejoiced. The eyes are enlightened. Grace nourishing words come from God. And that's what we are called to as well. Nourish in grace. We need to make all our conversations such that people leave us, at the end of that conversation, they leave us with more grace than they had when they met us. There is a worthy goal, friends. For every day, every conversation, Lord, give me grace so that when my wife leaves my presence in just a moment, she will feel more grace, experience more grace, know more grace than she had when... We started our conversation. Every day, relationships. On Sundays when you come to worship, don't come just to receive. Do come to receive. You need to receive. Uh, You need to have your soul fed and nourished with Christ. God in the Gospel. You need that. You need that. You know, when people say, you know, you go to church not for what you get, but for what you give. I say, no, you go to church to get. You need to get, but you also need to give. You also need to give. So come to worship, to community group, to the various contexts of your relationship with this in mind. How can I send people home with more grace than they came with? How can my words nourish? How can my words build up? How can my words edify? I want this person who is sad, who is grieving, who is discouraged, who is ashamed, who is guilt-stricken, I want this person to leave feeling the grace of God. We need to make our conversations such that people leave us with more grace than they had when they met us. Then I, and we'll stop, pause after this, immediately resolve immediately resolve. Conflicts are going to happen. They're going to happen 
over any number of things. Things are going to happen that provoke us. Um, Ephesians 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. There you go. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. It's possible. You can be genuinely and even... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Legitimately angered. There are things people do. Things people say. In our world and culture, there's a world of stuff that people do and say. The aborting of a baby. The the raping of a woman, the abuse of a child, these things ought to anger us. Not self-righteously or smugly or as if we could never do the same. If you ever think that about any sin, you don't know yourself. But we should be angry at what Satan has done to this world and sin has done to this world. But do not sin. Don't sin in your words. Don't sin in your attitude. Don't sin in self-righteousness. Don't sin in judgment. Don't sin in thinking that you could never do that. And Paul adds, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The idea there is that the devil is prowling. He's waiting. He's looking. He's, He's watching. He's looking for anger. And if anger lasts overnight, he's there. It's the opportunity he's waiting for. There's something that happens with anger. It doesn't go away overnight. It just goes into hiding. It doesn't get better. It just goes into hiding. And it stays there and it waits for a day when it can reappear. We have to, we have to make sure that we are not letting the sun go down on our anger. We are never going to bed mad. At somebody else. You know the text in Matthew where Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, go uh, before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Seek reconciliation right now. Main point, poem, to guard from friendship going bad. To guard from friendship going bad. Don't ever go to bed still mad. Just getting better and better all the time, isn't it? (laughs) To guard from friendship going bad. Don't ever go to bed still mad. Resolve the anger part of all conflicts before the sun sets. It doesn't mean you can resolve all disagreements before the sun sets. It doesn't mean that you're fully healed of all wounds before the sun sets. It just means that you have done everything you can do to resolve the anger part of the issue before the sun sets. And it means that you're posturing your heart in a place of forgiveness, in a spirit of reconciliation. In a heart of peace. You're, you're like God. Matthew, or Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah says, you are a God ready to forgive. Literally, a God of forgiveness. A God for whom forgiveness 
It's just a part of who he is. It's, it's his nature. It's his instinct. It's his impulse. It's his heart. It's his bent. He is ready to forgive. He's like the prodigal son's father who, who, though offended by his son, was just waiting to forgive, eager to forgive. Looking for the opportunity to forgive. That's what don't go to bed mad means. Your, your heart, your disposition is toward peace, love, and forgiveness. You want to do everything you can do to be in a place of peace. And you want to do it today. Immediately resolve. Immediately seek peace. Immediately seek reconciliation. Spoke with a couple celebrating their 50th anniversary years ago, Howard and Millie Christensen asked them the question, what's your secret? How'd you get through 50 years? Both of them answered, just like that. We never went to bed mad. Never went to bed mad. They made a conscious choice to end every day at peace with each other. It's doable. You may say that in this world, in the real world, yeah, in the real world, it's doable. It's like chilling's a choice. Forgiveness and reconciliation and peacemaking are choices as well. Never go to bed mad. All right, let's let's take a three or four minutes. Any questions? We're going to come back and finish up here in just a few minutes. But look, you know, while we're all still gathered here, any questions or comments anyone has? Any? Things said that you feel like you need a little expansion on or clarification on? Yeah, yes. So, sometimes, um, you know, like when you're communicating with people, you go through the whole, you know, sorry, you know, the thing. Um, sometimes I wonder about what is the best way to communicate that's okay without sounding enabling also. Yeah. So I assume that what you, let me make sure I'm understanding what I'm hearing here, um, that what you're meaning by that is probably a repeat offense or or somebody who's had an ongoing pattern of this, whatever the wrong was, and you're not wanting to just communicate it's no big deal. Um, and you can just keep right on doing this. You know, is that, am I hearing you right? Okay. Um, I don't want to give a glib answer to that question because I understand that it 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 touches nerves yeah. of of um, our own weakness, our own um, hurt, our own woundedness, our own frailty, um, and it touches nerves of genuine love and genuine concern. And uh, I know this well from personal experience where. All right, how do you forgive um, without enabling, without just communicating the idea that everything's okay and nothing needs to change? Um, maybe I'll try, I'll try to put the... You, there, this would be a, a careful, have to be a careful, thoughtful, prayerful, extended conversation. Um, but I think the gist of it would need to go something like this to that person. Um, thank you for asking for forgiveness. And 
And I do forgive you. I will not hold this against you. I will not. Um, I will not let this affect our relationship anymore. That's the nature of forgiveness. I am not going to hold this against you. I'm not going to let this affect our relationship. We're good. Uh, but then I think you can add legitimately, having forgiven, you can add. Uh, but there are some of these things that I think you need to work on, or I would like to help you with, or or can you... there? Some of these things have been going on for a while. I am not angry with you. I am not offended. I am not holding this against you. But I want to help you work through this. Can we do that together? You know, something like that that communicates genuine forgiveness. I'm not going to hold this against you. But an awareness that there is still an existing habit or pattern or way of life that for the sake of that person, for the sake of other people, for the sake of your relationship from here on out, still needs to be addressed, still needs to be talked about. That, that's the concept, how that would play out yes. in that specific situation would vary from person to person. Does that help? Absolutely. Okay. Anything you'd add to that, Subi? No, I, one thing that came to mind, it was a great point you made, was that it's possible to really truly forgive somebody from your heart, but what they did to you still hurts. Right. And the pain of it's still very real. And it doesn't mean you haven't forgiven. It just means you were affected yeah. by their sin against you. And uh, just, you know, I think if, 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 we're somebody, if we're somebody who has sinned against somebody, if they're still hurting over what we did, to just humbly walk realizing that that they do forgive me. Yeah. But they're just still hurting and I want to have compassion yeah. toward that hurt that they have because yeah. I caused it. Yeah. Part of genuine confession and asking for forgiveness is an awareness that the wrong you've done has had consequences. Yeah. And you accept that. So when David repented of his sin with Bathsheba, he says to the Lord, you are just when you... What's the right word? What's the word he used? Uh, I forget the exact wording. But you are just in your, in your discipline of me. You know, I have sinned. I ask your forgiveness. He knew he had God's forgiveness. But he also knew there were consequences for it that he accepted. He he owned. It's like the prodigal son when he came home. I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Let me be your servant. He was saying, I want your forgiveness, but I don't, ex I don't expect that there's going to be an instant restoration of me to full sonship status. I realize what I've done has affected you and hurt you and wounded you, and there are consequences to that. So as we're asking for forgiveness, we do well to express it in the kind of humility that gives to that person the understanding not only that we are sorry for what we did, but we get it if it's going to take some time for it to heal. Um, now, the question you're asking is kind of the other way in terms of people are coming to us asking for forgiveness. Uh, we have to forgive, but I think we also have to make sure that we mean what we say. And that they, they're able to understand what we're saying. We forgive. We love you. We're, we're together. 
but I'm still going to have to work through some of the hurt of this, or can we work on this together? Can we rebuild together? However, however that's worded, uh, so that they're not walking away misunderstanding what you what you said. Will you talk at any point during this morning about the, the impact of electronic communication, the emotionalist impact? Yeah, it is a great question, and I did, I do intend, God willing, time permitting, to. And I was gonna, it wasn't gonna be a major point, but a point in conclusion. And I'll say it now, just so that it it gets said. Um, everything we're talking about here applies to your texting, to your Facebook, to your tweets, to everything. We're going to be held accountable for every idle word that has come out of us. Um, so we should, yeah, I mean, my, um, all this stuff should, should apply to everything we see. You know, um, you read the latest, oh, it just, it just so grieves me day after day to read Christians posts about politicians. Uh, and I don't care who the politician is. It doesn't matter. When I post something that is unfounded, when I f- post something that is a negative report about another person that is not clearly, substantially proven and necessary, I have sinned. And I will hold, I'll be held accountable for it by God. Um, I need to make sure I'm understanding what I'm hearing. I better make sure that I'm thinking before I speak. And at a point, there's no exemption clause to that just because I'm using my fingers instead of my, my tongue. You know, the words that come out of us, God's going to ask us about them someday. God's going to rewind them, replay them for us someday. Um, we need to apply all the same strict standards. Thou shalt not bear false witness. It's not just for your verbal communication. It's for your Facebook post. It's for everything. Everything. Every word that comes out of you. Um, very sobering stuff. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the proverb says in the, in the, in the multitude of words, there is no lack of sin. Uh, we're living in a very wordy time. Where people are just spewing words all the time. Oh, much sin when there are many words. Uh, so we're just wise to be quiet. <laughs> we're just wise to keep our thoughts to ourselves and ponder how to answer because we'll answer for it on that day. Ah, uh, that's a great question. But no, again, I, it's probably worthy of a whole nother seminar because. How I read it may not be how, how you meant it. I'm sorry. And how one reads it may be different than how you yeah. meant it when you said. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's take a break. Um, Ten, twelve minutes, I think.